As a church, we have been studying the wonderful eyewitness account of the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer, the Apostle John, makes it clear in chapter 19, verse 35, as he's describing the death of Jesus Christ, that his testimony is true. That he is there at why witnessing the crucifixion for the purpose of, he says, believing and trusting. This is not just a man dying on the cross. John is there. He's an eyewitness to the brutal execution of Jesus and has come to faith not only in the reality of the cross, but also in its meaning. There have been thousands of men crucified on Roman crosses. None of them for the express purpose of believing and trusting and placing your faith in the one that is being crucified. But Jesus is different than all other men who have ever been crucified. Why? Why is this death different than the scores of other deaths? God through John wants us to see that the suffering Jesus endured was immeasurably unlike any other death in the history of the world. We will see this truth of why Jesus, what is different about his death under three simple headings. The first is the fires of sin. The second, the final satisfaction. And lastly, the fulfillment of Scripture. We pick up this narrative in John 19, 28. Jesus had been already brought to the religious court and falsely found guilty of blasphemy. We saw that. And then he's brought before Pilate, the Roman court. Again, a mock trial, falsely found guilty of being a king. He was a king, but not the king they were expecting. Pilate then scourges Jesus with a rod or a stick to soften him up, and he presents him to the Jewish people, and he says, who do you want me to release, Barabbas, the guilty one, the, the robber, the murderer, or Jesus, the innocent one? And the crowd cries out, not this man, Jesus, we want Barabbas. Trade the guilty one for the innocent one. Free the guilty and punish the innocent one. And then in John 19, 15, the crowd cries out, away with him and crucify him. Pilate then falls to political pressure and has Jesus flogged. We saw that on the video. A flagellum whip made of several braided strips of leather with balls of lead or, or, or bone in the end to rip the flesh. And after being flogged, Jesus led to Golgotha, Latin Calvary, the place of the skull. He's laid on a wooden beam and nailed to the cross. And as Jesus hung on the cross on that Good Friday, he said seven things, seven last things that he speaks from the cross. The first one is found in Luke 22. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The second thing Jesus says is he turns to the thief being nailed next to him, being crucified next to him. He says, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The third thing Jesus says from the cross we find in John 19, 26. Jesus turns and sees his mother and he says, woman. And he sees John, this is your son. And he turns to John and he says, this is your mom. He's caring for his mother. The fourth thing Jesus says in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, 34 Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is after that fourth cry that we pick up the gospel narrative in John chapter 19, verse 27. 
after that fourth cry of, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? John tells us about the fires of sin. Verse 28, John 19, 28. After this, after that cry, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge, just the, the soldiers, full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. As I said, this was after this. And Mark records that when Jesus cried out, it was during the noon hour, between noon, 12, and 3, when there was darkness that had taken over the land. The word darkness is skatos. It's blindness, complete Darkness in the middle of the day. It was a supernatural work of God. Why would God cause darkness to cover the land? What is God saying to us about the cross? Well, physical darkness is a metaphor. It's an image in the Bible for spiritual darkness. It's, it's, it, it is predicts of our condition. It's a prediction of our condition, our sinfulness, our rebellion against God. Jesus said in John 3, The light has come into the world. He's the light of the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their what? Works were evil. Darkness in the Bible is a picture of sin. Turning your back on God. It is life without God who is the source of life and he's the source of light. Darkness is not just a picture of our sin, but darkness in the Bible is also a a, a picture of judgment for our sins. Maybe remember the Exodus story. During the Exodus, Israelites from, uh, were uh, released from Egypt on the way to the promised land, and God brought ten plagues as judgment on the land. On the ninth plague, there was darkness over the land. In other words, get ready. And then the tenth plague, we read, was the death of the firstborn in all of the land. The original Passover. And God visited the, 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 the place in Egypt. And that was, a, that was a glimpse, a preview, a foretaste of what Judgment Day looks like when God comes down and judges sin. And the tenth plague came at midnight in darkness. God breaks into the world and divine justice comes down on evil. And the next morning there was either a dead lamb in the home or a dead son. The lamb would substitute, was a substitute for the sun when judgment came down. So this darkness that we see that Mark tells us about on the cross and in the land was a picture, was, was, uh, was pointing to the reality that judgment had come down on sin. Judgment had come down on rebellion. That is precisely what Jesus was experiencing. He was dying as a substitute for others. He was suffering the punishment for our sins. It was then That Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as bad as the nails being driven through his hands, as bad as it was for nails being driven through his feet, the excruciating pain, Jesus does not mention one word about that because it does not compare to the horror of taking our judgment on himself and God forsaking the sin bearer. In that moment, we don't completely understand how the Father forsook the Son. Jesus never ceased to be God. But in that moment, as, the, as Jesus is bearing our sin, the intimacy of the Father was lost. Not for his sin, but for our sin. 
And it was after that, after those three hours, after that, that Jesus Christ, I thirst. Why now? He had been given something to drink earlier and he refused it. Why now? Yes, Jesus was thirsty. He's fully human. Dehydration was real as all the fluid was being lost of the one who was being crucified. The German Reformed theologian said this about the cross. The blood vessels of his sacred body, talking about Jesus, are almost dried up. A dreadful fever rages through his frame. His tongue cleaves to his jaws. His lips burn. He concludes, this is scarcely a greater torment than that of insatiable thirst. Insatiable thirst. I thirst. You see, the dehydration was a picture too. The dehydration was a picture too. It was a picture of what happened to Jesus on the cross because there he was carrying and, and, and being poured out. God was pouring out his wrath. The justice of God. The fire came down on Jesus Christ. I thirst. The prophet Nahum wrote this. Who can stand before his indignation? Talking about God. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. In some mysterious way, during those awful hours on the cross, the Father poured out the full measure of his wrath against sin, and the recipient of that wrath was God's own beloved Son. It was the very cup that Jesus prayed about in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus was getting what the human race deserved for sin. It was a, like a million suns shining brightly, beating down as he was experiencing the divine burning, the everlasting burning, the divine justice of God. Jesus experiencing ultimate thirst. He is suffering spiritual thirst. The agony, the agony, the agony of separation from God. So why is this death, this suffering different than any other death? He was paying for our sins. He, he became thirsty so we can have him, the living water. He suffered separation so that we can be brought into his love as the hot, fiery judgment fell upon him. The fires of sin. The final satisfaction. Look at verse 29. The jaw full of sour wine stood there. They put the sponge full of sour hyssop, gave it to him to drink. Verse 30. When Jesus had reached the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus said, no one takes my life. No one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to to lay it down, I have the authority to take it up again. That alone is like no other death we know. One could lay down his life and jump maybe off a cliff, but no one just gives up his spirit. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's Jesus' prayer. The ultimate work, the ultimate work that Jesus accomplished was clearly seen here on the cross on his fifth cry, it is finished. Yes, it was, it was the, the, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus was just about over. I am sure that Jesus was expressing 
relief from the physical suffering. But the Greek word tetelestai, it is finished, is used by the Greeks for financial transaction. In fact, the verb form is used in religious contexts associating with fulfilling one's obligation. A banker would give you a receipt, tetelestai, paid in full. And if you fulfilled your religious obligation, you could say the same thing. It is done. It is completed. Nothing more necessary. You see, the shout from the cross, from the Savior, wasn't a whimper, but a cry of conquer. It was a job well done, mission accomplished. It is finished. All that needs to be done has been done. Nothing more is needed. The fact that Jesus finished and accomplished our salvation on the cross means, listen, means we cannot and should not add anything to what he did. To add human merit, to add works of any kind diminishes the finished work of Christ and in reality really is just a matter of pride. It's a matter of pride. A failure to really recognize you and I, our deep inability to save ourselves. It detracts from the beauty and the glory and the mercy and the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No works, no merit. The only way to respond to this gift of salvation through Christ's finished work is to receive it by faith and faith alone through Christ alone. He finished redemption by substituting himself, bearing the wrath of sin for his people. The agony of the cross was completed when it became the sin sacrifice. The awful storm of God's wrath has been poured out and the wages of sin have been paid. Divine holiness, justice of God has been satisfied. Now some of you may be here thinking, why? Why does a sacrifice need to be made for the forgiveness of sins? You know, I understand we talk about blood sacrifice in this day and era, and in our culture, it may seem a little odd. You see, in the Old Testament sacrifices, and there would be many sacrifices, actually. It's written in the law. It's performed in the temple by the priest, and it's gory, and it's violent. And it's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to shock us so that we can realize how horrifying and how shocking and gross our sin is to God. And it's so the holy and righteous God says, this is what your sin and rebellion looks like. It's grotesque. It's disturbing. It's troubling. It's death. It's evil. You need to see that. I need to see that. And then in love, and then in love. God initiates the way into reconciliation with him. Now listen, God initiates the way into reconciliation with him. He pursues relationship with you and with me. God is love, and yes, he wants relationship, but he is holy. He is just. He cannot embrace sin. So what does God do? God provides blood as a means of atonement. Leviticus, very important verse. Chapter 17, verse 11. God makes it clear. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you, God talking, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. We, we don't get to decide. We don't get to create our own way into relationship with the Holy God. He does. 
It's his covenant. And Leviticus tells us that he's given us the blood to make atonement for our souls. Blood is a symbol of life. It's given to us to make atonement, not only because the life of the creature, the blood line, the life of the creature is in the blood, but it's in the bloodshed, a life ending that makes atonement for one's life. One life is forfeited. Another life is sacrificed instead. The Bible is clear. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And all of us deep down, deep down know that when sin and wrongdoing has been done, maybe something happened to you. Maybe there's something you have done to others. All of us know deep down that when that happens, a debt is owed. A debt is owed. You can either let go and forgive, absorb and release the debt, or become angry and bitter and resentful and, and perpetuate, perpetually pay by your anger and your hostility and your bitterness They perpetually pay for the debt that you know is owed to you. Even our culture and our society knows this, right? We have courts, we have laws, systems and penalties imposing debt, uh, imposing uh, the payment of sin and debt. It's the way it works. You know it. I know it. How much more for us, how much more for treason and rebellion and, and sin against our God, our Creator, you see, in the, in the Old Testament, the blood sacrifices were not only insufficient, really, to save and to forgive, but the animal sacrifices were pointers, pointing to the one who would come and forgive us. Animal sacrifices are insufficient because they could never atone for human sin. It was a picture pointing to Jesus, who is the greater sacrifice, who at the incarnation took on humanity, identifying with our nature yet without sin, so that he can atone for sin. Hebrews 10.5, Christ came into the world, and Christ said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you're talking about the Old Testament, You take no pleasure, but I, Jesus speaking, have come to do your will. Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily in his service, doing his thing, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, Good Friday, he sat down at the right hand of God. That means it is finished. He sat down. Because Jesus is God and man. Jesus can shed his blood and is able to pay the price for our sin. His substitutionary death, his perfect life, that's the gospel. The gospel is that God himself would pay our debt. God himself would pay our debt. The cross is, in the words of J.I. Packer, the self-substitution of God paying the price in Jesus Christ. Listen, the only way to deal with cosmic evil, sin, and debt is for the God of the cosmos to come and sacrifice himself and pay the ransom for our sins to set us free. The incarnation gives Jesus the ability to die as an atonement for our sins as he identifies us with humanity. And because he is God, he is able to forgive you of your sins. The final satisfaction, finally the fulfillment of Scripture.
We've been saying as we've been studying the book of John over and over, ever since really, well, all the whole book, but we've been looking really closely from the night on which Jesus was betrayed, that John, the gospel writer, is making it very clear that, that God is in control of all that takes place, particularly in the Passion Week. There have been several times, as we've noticed, that people tried to kill Jesus. They tried to throw him off a, a cliff. They, they picked up rocks to stone him. But it never took place. Because the hour had not yet come. The death of God's only son was not on their timetable, but his. Whether it was betrayal of, of Judas, denial of Peter, the manner of the crucifixion, the day of the hour in which he was crucified, God is seen as sovereignly in control. Nothing helps us to see that more and more clearly than the fulfillment of Scripture. Fulfillment of all that God has said hundreds of years before Good Friday took place. There are many places in the Old Testament I could take you. Hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified to show you the prophecy after prophecy of the crucified and risen Christ. I want to read to you Psalm 22. Hundreds of years written. And see if this sounds familiar to you. Psalm 22.1. Hundreds of years before the first Good Friday. Verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Spoken by Jesus as God's wrath is poured out. Verse 6, Psalm 22, verse 6. I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. That is exactly what happened with the soldiers. When they beat Jesus, spit on Jesus, put a crown of thorns on his head, they mocked him as king. Psalm 22, 7. They make... Mouths at me, hurls insults, and they wag their heads. They say, he trusted the Lord, let him deliver him. Matthew 27 says that's exactly what the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees said while Jesus was hanging on the cross. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen: I am poured out like water. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up. Like a potsherd, dried pottery, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. What does that sound like? It is finished. I thirst. All seen right here. Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They divide my garments. And for my clothes they cast lots. A description of the cross. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Again, pinpoint accuracy of the crucifixion. Now look. John nineteen, thirty-one. Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For the Sabbath was a high day. That means it was the Passover Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with them. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. 
Verse 35. He who uh, saw this bears witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place how? Why? That scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You see, time was running out. The sun was going down. The Sabbath was going to start. The Rome... The Romans would regularly allow people to be crucified and leave them on a cross for days until they were dead. And even after they were dead, they would leave them there. The vultures would come, and and it was a deterrent for the Romans. Mess with us, that's what you get. But the Jews did not want to leave the dying bodies or the dead bodies on the cross because to them, according to Deuteronomy 21, it would defile the land. I mean, the hypocrisy is blaring. We want to crucify an innocent man, the eternal Son of God, but let's not defile the land. So Rome had a solution. They would take the the, the sledgehammer or the hammer and crush the bone, the legs of the victims. And that would stop them from pushing up to breathe. The chest cavities were were slowly just filling with with, uh, carbon monoxide and they would lift up on their feet as they were being crucified and breaking their legs would slouch them down. They would try with their arms, but that wouldn't last very long. And once their legs were broken, they would die quickly. The soldiers went to there, went to those men and seen and broke the first man's legs, went and broke the second man's legs. When they came to Jesus, they said he's already dead. No need to break his legs. Again, fulfilling scripture, Psalm twenty-two, seventeen. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Do you know that in Exodus 12 and Numbers 9, God prohibits the Israelites from breaking the bones of the Passover lamb every year? Every year, when they have the Passover, God tells them, don't break the bone. Pointing to Jesus. Pointing to Jesus. God sovereignly prevented the soldiers. They, they, they would break the legs just for fun. But God sovereignly prevented the soldiers so that Jesus would fulfill the messianic prophecies. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the soldier sticks a, a spear in his side and, and opens the cavity up and blood and water pour out. Again, Zechariah 12.20, they look on him whom they have pierced. The last few verses to close, listen to this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So Joseph came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloth with spices as the custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Just happened to be a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Matthew tells us that was Joseph's tomb. Verse 42. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, it's going to be the Sabbath, a Passover Sabbath, Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Hundreds and hundreds of years before this took place, the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53 that Jesus would be despised, 
he would be rejected by men. He would be a man of sorrow, familiar with sufferings, but he would be pierced for our transgressions. That's the crucifixion. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's substitutionary language. It is finished. Isaiah continues in verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. That's Joseph of Arimathea. After the suffering of his soul, Isaiah writes, that's death. He will see the light of life. That's resurrection. And be satisfied. That's final satisfaction. Justice of God satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their sins. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life onto death and was numbered with the transgressors, men on the cross side, left and right of Jesus. For he, Jesus, bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. Now listen. Listen carefully. God is in control of all these events. The scriptures do not fail. And the point of all this is that Jesus is indeed the anointed one of God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He truly died an atoning death, suffering the fire of wrath for our sins. He truly died and paid the debt of all our sins, past, present, and future. And three days later, he rose from the dead. The cosmic receipt displayed to the world Paid in full. It is finished. Now, I don't know if you could see this, but this is a white rag. It's filthy. It was clean. It was clean and white. But my tires were black and filthy. Now the rag is filthy, but my tires are clean. Something that was clean (laughs) had to become dirty. So that which is dirty had to become clean. Jesus, the spotless and holy one of God, took our sins upon himself and was made sin, filthy and cursed, so that we can become clean. The Apostle John wrote in verse 35 again, he who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. Do you believe? Have you trusted Christ? Are you recognizing your sinfulness, his holiness, his satisfaction for you as he died on the cross for your sins? Trust this evening in the finished work of Christ. You can't add, you can't take away, you have to trust. You give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. That's what Good Friday is all about. Father, as we continue to worship as the band plays how deep the Father's love for us, Father, help us to worship you for your sacrifice as the only means of salvation and reconciliation between a sinful people and a holy God. Thank you for your work, Lord Jesus.
taking the fires of sin, satisfying the justice of God, and fulfilling all of Scripture. 